podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Before we get into the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. You can learn more by visiting podvoices.help. The link is in the show notes. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. I encourage you to speak up, take care, spread the word. If you are listening to this episode on Thursday, June 30th, the ACLU is hosting an emergency broadcast. It is a town hall event. The link to that is on YouTube. It's over there in the show notes. It's 4 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, June 30th. If you're able to attend, that should be another interesting session. Today's episode is a conversation that I am so excited to bring you. Um, This is an award-winning journalist, an author with an upcoming book that speaks to many of the themes that we have explored on this show. So enjoy the conversation and know that you'll be able to learn more about today's guest by heading over to the show notes and following them on social media, exploring their podcast, and of course, also checking out their upcoming book. Enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Ernest Owens. I'm an award-winning journalist and CEO of Ernest Media Empire, LLC. I'm the president of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, and I'm also the editor at Large Philadelphia Magazine. I have an upcoming book called The Case for Council Culture that comes out February 2023 and available for pre-order now. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens and check me out at ErnestOwens.com. Thank you so much, Ernest, for being here today. And listeners, all of those links are going to be over there for you in the show notes. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned the upcoming book, February. I'm really looking forward to February in a way that maybe I wouldn't ordinarily be because of <laughs> yeah. uh, your upcoming book. So The Case for Cancel Culture, How This Democratic Tool Works to Liberate Us All. As you mentioned, it's available for pre-order from a variety of places. Again, listeners, links over there in the show notes. Um, I actually learned about your book on an episode of a great podcast, Woke AF, with Danielle Moody. Listeners, it's another great show to put into your rotation. Um, And in that interview, you talk about how we need to reclaim the phrase cancel culture. Um, I loved that whole conversation and I really, really appreciated you bringing that up. Can you speak to the ways that your upcoming book is going to help us reclaim that phrase and why it matters? Absolutely. I think that what we've seen over the years is that terms that oftentimes are used to belittle the marginalized, to shame those who have um, strong opinions or want to speak out is often weaponized against us. And that is the case with council culture. You know, before there was council culture, there was PC culture, um, call out culture, and uh, what is that, political correctness, and all these terms, right? And they're often used to mock progressives and liberals and people who are trying to um, really address some of the problematic things that we witness. Now, council culture in my book and how I look at it is a situation in which people seek to terminate or end something that they consider problematic. How they define problematic in the terms of my book is something that, you know, negatively impacts their livelihood. 
which means that council culture is bipartisan, right? There are things that conservatives view um, that they think should be canceled, right? They're trying to now cancel abortions, right? Because they think that women and, and, and non-binary individuals having reproductive rights will impact their livelihood. Whether or not we think that is true or not, that idea is a form of council culture. So I want people to recognize that council culture is either a great thing or a bad thing. Um, it's, it's not an evil, it's a tool. And how we use it is what determines its outcome, right? When we think about knives, the idea of a knife can say a knife can be a bad thing because you can turn into a weapon. Or a knife could be a wonderful thing because it can make your salads and your veggies and everything else you're eating easier to, to, to devour. I look at council culture as that, that we as individuals all have this ability to cancel or to mobilize to cancel. The decision is up to us on how we choose and why. What we're seeing, though, in pop culture and the media is that every time people speak out against racism, homophobia, transphobia, women's rights, trans rights, everything that you can think of that is seeking to liberate people, those who are in power yell council culture because they're being put in a position of accountability. And folks are allergic to accountability. And powerful people, that is their kryptonite. So they will always reshift and reframe anything that we're doing to call them to be accountable as a bad thing. So accountability for them becomes council culture, council culture. When in reality, it's simply people demanding change. I, you know, again, I really appreciate your clarity around that and why it's so important that we reclaim it and that we understand accountability is a must have, right? If we're going to move forward, we have to be thinking about accountability as something that is going to help us get there, right? Um, uh, and, and I, again, I, I just sort of love the subtext with your title, it's a democratic tool. Um, uh, again, I just, I really appreciate that. I think, Ernest, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were working on this book for three years. Uh, yes. Great. Uh, it's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were lots of different pivotal moments, <laughs> peaks and valleys throughout those three years. And I'm wondering, as you look back at that timeline, um, was there a piece of research? Was there a conversation or a moment that as you're looking back at that, at that process that you're thinking, this was really like a, a galvanizing moment for me, either in really seeing um, the potential for the book or just a specific memory that you, you know, maybe again, if you could see 10 oh, years into the future, um, you'll point us to. Oh. oh, no, definitely. I think two moments for me. In 2019 in November, I wrote an op-ed, my debut op-ed for the New York Times, talking about Obama um, and, you know, what the former president was saying about how call-out culture and in, in, in talking about how this is not going to be productive and it wasn't going to help people and and was really kind of being very anti-council uh, culture. And he framed it like as if it was just a bunch of people complaining about issues and that this wasn't going to resolve issues and things of that nature. And I was just like, wait a minute, that's not what this is, right? That's not what call-out culture, council culture is. This is a very boomer perspective, but it's also one about power. And I was saying to myself, like, this, why does this man sound like a conservative right now, the way he's bashing it? And I realized in that moment, for me, that council culture wasn't a political, it, that 
it was being politicized. But for me, I was taking out that this isn't a right wing, left wing issue, that this was really more so a power dynamic. And the power dynamic was what was really at fault, that those who see, who have power, whether they're conservatives or liberals, they can agree that this council culture they don't like. And it made me want to think, why don't they like it? And I always noticed that it was always in a position where those who were less powerful was having the mic. And they were actually being antagonistic towards these dynamics where the David in the situation was, was having some level of authority that they couldn't control. And so I thought about Me Too. I thought about the civil rights movement. I thought about all these movements where those people that they considered little were having the mic and having a position to hold them accountable. And how every time in history, when you saw these underdogs pushing against something, how oftentimes those in power would mock it or criticize and belittle it. So I took that and I thought about that for a while. But then in 2020, during the pandemic, I was invited on this YouTube channel um, called uh, Black Academic. And it was like this international conversation amongst Black, I guess, thought leaders. Um, and this guy was, you know, you know, I guess anti-council you know, culture. And I guess I was pro-council culture. And he was just going on and on about how, you know, there would be no good civil rights leaders today if if council culture was around that there would be nothing nothing would be enjoyable like everyone was to cancel everyone and it's i hate this i hate that and he talked about how he was banned off of um twitter the twitter account was suspended and how he was canceled and i pushed back and was curious to say you know well what did you do and he spoke about how he made some jokes and then we get into these jokes and they were very colorist and very you know, it was rooted in misogyny noir. And I was saying to myself, like, well, do you not think that those individuals could not express their opinion? You're, you're, you're hesitant to share what you said, but how do you think, how do you think that council culture only exists for you to disparage others without others pushing back on you? And it was in that moment where I realized yet again, a pattern that whether it was former president Barack Obama, or Donald Trump, or this individual who had this, you know, Twitter account, that there were people who were pushing back against being challenged on the problematic things they were doing. And, 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 the, and also using council culture as the boogeyman to scare people from actually speaking up. And that is when I knew I had a book on my hands. Mm, yeah, I, you know, that, that resonates with me. And I think that'll resonate, you know, the audience of this show primarily folks who work in education, right? And I think the world of education is beginning to reckon with a conversation about power dynamics, how they show up right. in school and curriculum. Um, and you're asking really some important questions about, are there consequences for our opinions? Yeah, yeah, there are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's be clear, opinions are never just opinions. When you put opinions on the world stage, and that, that's the difference, right? We all hold personal opinions that are really intimate to ourselves. But when you take an opinion, you put it on the world stage, whether it's on a world platform, on social media, or on a comedian stage where millions of people can watch it on Netflix, that holds power to shape minds and views. We know the power of opinions through, through history, right? 
Um, I don't, I mean, from the very beginning, like when we look at how we've gotten our constitution and, you know, how we've seen, you know, Holocaust and slavery and all these issues, it starts with ideas and opinions, good or bad, dangerous, right? And then it becomes actions and then actions lead to systems. And, and, and these individuals love to say, oh, it's just my opinion. But if it was just your opinion, why did you feel like you had to let the whole world know? You want to in inspire, you want to influence. And if those influences impact people's livelihoods, then the people who are going to be affected by those influences have the right to push back. It's, it's so funny that those who are often proponents, I mean, opponents actually of council culture, oftentimes argue, oh, you know, um, my free speech, my free speech. But free speech is a double-edged sword. You can say what you want in this country, but the people who you don't like can also say what they want in this country. And if they say something that counters you, you can't spend an entire time disparaging people in the LGBTQI community and they get mad that the LGBTQI community disparages you back. That's how it works in a free speech, right? And so what I'm realizing is that those powerful folks like the Dave Chappelle's and those with this influence, they want to say what they want because they feel entitled to based on their power. Mm -hmm. But they don't want anyone who is not their quote unquote equal to dare speak to them or challenge them in that free speech. So what does that free speech really mean? And again, we're, we're weaponizing democratic resources that were fought uh, for by the people for the people and those who are in power are weaponizing those very resources and assets that we fought for to now deny us the same abilities that they've been afforded to use. So if Dave Chappelle can get on stage and, and push transphobic jokes, why can't transgender people in this country be able to collectively petition for him not to make those jokes? without being criticized, right? They're, they're being shamed more than he's being shamed for what he did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's about resetting the room. This book is about resetting this because we've gotten to a point where I'm seeing too many, I'm seeing progressive spaces begin to adopt this rhetoric around council culture. And I'm starting to say, wait a minute, if those people are not even looking at what's helping them in their best interests, we have a problem. And my book is seeking to reset the room, reclaim the phrase, remind people of our history, remind them that this is something that is being done by both sides. Because let's not forget when Jerry or Orfell was um, out here um, canceling the Teletubbies and the conservatives and the country singers were going after the Dixie Chicks. Like everyone's been canceling. Right. Just say no to drugs. The war on drugs was driven by conservatives and Democrats who were passively letting it happen. Right. Mass incarceration. All of these things. Right. Canceling communities, canceling, you know, resources, canceling identities like everyone's been doing this forever. And now we're seeing a, sh a paradigm shift. Where new people are getting rights that they didn't have before. So someone asked me, why are this current generation of boomers and Republicans so mad at council culture? Because as you look at time, 
there was a time before 1964, right, when Black people like myself and my grandparents specifically did not have e any real equal protections. So they didn't have the ability to clap back against the racism they experienced. As we see the world evolve, more people, queer, trans, Black in certain spaces are getting more access and rights to be vocal, more resources like social media to be vocal. And so when people say cancel culture is a new phenomenon, it tells me that they were used to living in a world when they didn't get to hear or have to hear what women thought or what Black people thought or what queer people thought. They didn't have to hear the dissent in articles, on television. They lived in a world where they didn't have to hear what the other side thought. Now they see it and hear it 24 seven because we've got it more democratic and they hate it. They hate it because they're like, wait, I only got the talk. I only have the mic. Now I have to hear another person speak and now they get to see what we've experienced our entire lives a world where they dominated platforms and got to skew their bigotry without being checked. And we had to just sit there and take it because we didn't have the rights. We didn't have, and we still, a lot of us still don't have those rights, right? We didn't have the liberties and the freedoms to express ourselves. We didn't have outlets to let our, our feelings. We didn't have podcasts for everybody, right? There wasn't that much accessible resources for us to spew our, 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 our disappointment. Now they're seeing how we feel in real time and they can't take it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, you know, again, I, I think that your book is going to sustain that conversation. I'm really looking forward to as we get closer to February. Um, you know, just I, I feel like there's going to be more community coming together to explore those ideas. In the meantime, to tide folks over, um, you have a, a weekly podcast, Earnestly Speaking. Yes. The, the link to that will be over there in the show notes. You're coming up on your 100th episode. So first of all, congratulations. Um, I am new to the show. For others who might be new to the show, would you point us to uh, one or two episodes that you think would help us connect with and kind of get a preview for some of the ideas that you explore in the upcoming book? It's interesting. It's, it's funny that you asked that. I, I would say the most recent episode I did, episode 24 for season two. Um, I would say that episode, I, I tapped a little bit into it because I just finished uh, the Woke AF podcast episode, so I did talk about it. I, I've talked about, I mean, it's very thematic throughout my podcast episodes. Like, it's, it's this, it, it, the topic comes up because there's always something going on in the world of council culture. So I would say any great episode, any episode of your interest, you'll find themes and and in conversation, especially once the book had a date and the cover came out, more recent episodes, we've been definitely applying and in integrating more, but there's just so much. And, and the book is, yeah, the podcast is a, a great primer in general to what the book is going to get into. Um, but I try so much not to put too much of the book in there, but I do want people to know that when I say a case for council culture, I'm, I know there's people who get emotional about that and be like, oh, he just wants to cancel people. It's like, no, there's levels to this. There's a very more um, thoughtful aspect of it. You know, the title 
For some people might hit them like a sack of bricks, but it's one of those look closer, look carefully, read more on purpose. Mm. And so I'm excited about I love that. Thank you so much for that. Lastly, I, I learned somewhat recently, and actually I might've learned this from you, that um, pre-order sales for a book are super important. They, um, you know, publish how publishers are, are taking in that data. Um, and, you know, I, I had never thought before about how the pre-order numbers are such an important statistic. Can you talk a little bit about that as an author? Um, talk to us about where the best place to pre-order your book might be. Um, and um, I, I'd love to hear you, you know, we, we touched yeah. on how powerful social media can be. And I'm thinking more and more about how important it is to amplify books, you know, if you might want to talk about just social media integration and what it means to you as an author when people are, totally. again, boosting and amplifying. Absolutely. I put out a book at a great time. Um, you know, I love this rollout. This rollout has been phenomenal. The support of everyone has continued to be tremendous, but it's all been great to just keep it going. Um, when this pre-order came out for this book um, last month, it went number one in new releases in its category um, off of pre-sales alone. Pre-sales are a big deal for authors because all of the units, right? Every book bought, all of that counts towards the first week's sale, which can help it you know, crack on bestsellers lists like the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and other um, booksellers. It helps crack those lists. Um, and, you know, every sale counts, every single one. Um, and what's great is that for people who want to support, um, I would say oftentimes going to the direct, um, direct seller um, online. So a lot of people do Amazon, which is fine. You know, every, every book place is fine. But, you know, when you get it from, you know, a hard bookstore like a Barnes and Noble um, or Harriet's, which is the local book distributor through there on the on the link, you'll see like Harriet's a woman, a black woman owned bookstore that's going from the direct merchant through them. That helps increase, you know, their viability, their sales, but also helps to, you know, show the diversity of purchases and buyers, right? That it's not just people buying it from one outlet, they're buying it through a multiple of streams. So I tell people, get the book wherever you feel you feel comfortable. There's people who are like, you know, my book is the case for council sculpture. There's people that's anti-Amazon, right? Look, you 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 could get the book from Amazon, you get the book from anywhere, Barnes and Noble. You don't want to go from a mass teller, you want to support local, get Harriet's, or you want to get an indie niche, but there, we have it on various outlines. You want your target points, we're selling the book on target. At Target, like there's tons of places you can get it. And um, I always tell people, get what, what makes sense for you, where you feel comfortable, where you, you know, want to see your money go. Um, but all of those sales, each one of them helps and makes an impact. Social media makes an impact. Buy more than one copy if you can. Buy it for a friend. I think your friends might need it. It's a great coffee table book. Um, there's also an audio book. You know, there's, there's a lot of my friends are in the audio book, but they're also buying the, the physical book. Social media is important because it spreads the word out there. There's other people. I tend to find that I have a very diverse set of followers. And if they follow me, they're most likely following other people or people in their network that have similar ideals or want to feel that way, right? And that's how we network and we connect. Like I was on Woke AF and look, you're, you listen to Woke AF. So it's that same circle of people that get it, right? We want to spread that, you know, want to spread that word and that knowledge. So I always tell people, Nowadays, it's so easy. Um, Instagram allows you to link, put the link um, 
in a post. So if you do a post, you can also get the link. And you can share to Instagram. You can tag, tagging, sharing on Instagram, links and bios. Or if you don't do link in bio, you can do like the link for the story so people can immediately click and make a purchase there. I literally did. I, I had a viral Instagram story this yesterday, actually. And I said, you know what? Let me just go ahead and just throw my like book cover and tell people to click the link. And people were like, oh my God, I didn't even get a book. And, you know, just went there. So shouting out the author, shouting out the cover, directing people to the link to buy the book um, is, is great. Showing that you bought the book, that was like what made, I think the, we, we got number one on Amazon new releases because it was so funny because people that day were just in droves sharing that they purchased it. Just a mere tag of saying, I got my copy, I pre-ordered my copy. Supporting that right now, especially supporting Black queer authors. There is a lot of press about the lack of diversity in the literature canon. I am 30 years old. I'm a millennial. I'm Black. I'm queer. I came from a working class family. There are not too many nonfiction books about issues like this being written by people who look like me. When I chose to write this book with my agent and, and Macmillan, you know, took it on, Part of that was because when I looked at the books that were companion literature, most of those books were written by white men. Most of them were written by conservatives. Most of them were written by people way older than me at a very narrow viewpoint about these issues. The way that you let these, the book community, the literary world know that we want to see more black and brown writers, we want to see more queer writers, is by supporting those authors, those first-time authors coming in, right? Because there's people who've been doing this for a while, and we know y'all love Toni Morrison. We, I love Toni Morrison, too. We know y'all love Charles Blow. We know you love the ones who've been writing these great books. But it's really important to support the new writers and the first-time authors coming in to show them that this isn't a moment, but a movement, mm -hmm. that there's great authors from the community at all levels, and that when they see that, like the success of this book will open up doors for more writers like myself that want to write progressive forward books. Because there are so many anarchist, conservative books on the market that are selling like bananas. And I'm sitting here like, where are my progressive writers? You know, Malcolm Gladwell and these guys are great, but they can't be the only ones controlling the conversation. They can't. Like it's all Adam Grant. Great writers, great folks, great thought leaders, but they're oftentimes cishet white men that are telling our stories. And so I will, I really want the listeners and folks that we, we oftentimes talk about how we want to see change. We have to make sure that our, our bookshelves reflect our values. If your bookshelf does not look like the ideals and values and people you follow on social media, that's a problem, right? Frederick, um, who does this, he's a really great um, writer. He's in his second book, Black Man, Frederick Joseph. He has a book out that just got on New York Times bestsellers list, his second book. And he has a really great book called Patriarchy, Patriarchy View, Blues, Reflections on Manhood. It's a Black man who's an ally to the community writing about patriarchal views in society. I haven't read anything like this. Mm. Like a like you know, Bell Hooks is the is the queen, but like a young black man who is progressive, who's a feminist, 
who is an ally to the community, queer community, that's writing a book about masculinity in a way that unpacks it, calls out his toxicity. And he's and he's writing this book and it's in and, and it got on the New York Times bestsellers. But like that's what I'm saying. His first book was successful. Because the people supporting his first book, he was able to write a second book. And the second book was successful. We gotta keep building the trajectory for black and, and, and queer and, and brown, diverse, progressive voices. We gotta have these books out to counter a lot of the books out here that are encouraging the overturning of Roe versus Wade. That is also encouraging the future, hopefully not, right, overturn Ogrebefell versus Hodges. Like we have to recognize that part of the reason why we got to this point is if we look at how pop culture, the literary world and society has been entertaining these problematic ideas for years, again, opinions, it's been in our, our world. How many toxic books are getting published right now that we don't have books countering? There are, ton, there are like dozens of books. If you go on Amazon, there are dozens of books that are anti-cancel culture. My book is the first mainstream book of its kind that is pro-cancel culture through a, through, through a progressive lens. The only one, not self-published, like a major publication said, we're going to support, major, major publisher said, we're going to support a book like this written by a guy like this. Hasn't been done on this topic. And we have many breakthroughs that need to happen. And I hope that the success of this book will inspire a continual wave of progressive voices like this in literature right now. Modern voices, by the way. And if we want more books like it, as you say, we need to let the publishers know this is what we want, you know, and I, I think about it too, you know, I, I <laughs> this is so cheesy, sorry, but I also had my parents, I'm like, uh, you know, my, my parents are in New Jersey, I'm in Ottawa, I'm like, hey, I let my local librarian know, can you make sure you've got this stocked as a pre-order, ask my mom and dad to do that in their little small town library. Um, you know, I, I kind of think, again, as much amplification as we can do, because we need, as you, as you say, we need more books like this. We need your perspective um, in ways that, as you say, it has not been showing up. And I love that point about you know, thinking about your bookshelf, whose voice is loudest and whose voice has been loudest in that space for a long time. You know, educators who are listening, we have professional development libraries on our campuses. Go take a look at your professional development library. What kind of voice is the dominant voice there? We know what it is, right? So let's make sure we are countering it. Schools are very good at often saying like, you know, we're about cultivating open-mindedness. Are you? Look at the authors. So again, um, I think this is going to be a great text to pre-order. Um, and as we are avidly awaiting its publication, do check out Earnestly Speaking, a weekly podcast. Um, it's a great show. Subscribe. And also- Subscribe. Yeah, and you know, check out too that conversation with Danielle Moody on Woke AF. I will link to it. That was a, a brilliant conversation. Um, again, I was thrilled to get to get to speak with you, Ernest. After listening to that, I just you know the whole time listening along, I was just sort of like, yes, 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 yes. So thank you so much for your time. Congratulations again on this upcoming book. I cannot wait to see the conversation, the much needed conversation that it sparks. Thank you so much for your support and to all the listeners, 
thank you for listening. And I just can't wait. I mean, so much is going to happen between now and then. I'm just excited about all the big news that's on the rising. There's so many more excitement, exciting news about the book coming out. And I just have to sit on my hands. But it's going to be fun. We're going to have a lot of fun. This is going to be a moment. And um, thank you so much for uh, just the support and reaching out. Thank you. Thank you.